Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Shady Miracle of Modern Creation. So, Steve, I reckon we should start by talking about the the facility, the space that we're in, oh, yeah. and the history of, I guess, what music community and Asian Dub Foundation share, because I guess it was a key part of the early history was, of this band, very right? Could I just bring you right into this mic? Is that okay? Yeah. So we can get you sounding nice. Well, it had an interesting history. It's called community music. This is community music. It's changed a lot. But, I mean, initially, when they set it up in the early 80s, I wasn't there then, but it was actually set up by a lot of lefty jazz musicians. My guy called John Stevens, who was uh, actually played for John and Yoko. For really? Well, yeah. Wow. As well as a whole load of, I think... Most famous one. Well, they probably played with every kind of famous sort of avant-garde sort of jazzy sort of person in London, you know. Yeah. It's kind of well known as uh, very much that sort of pre-punk 70s lefty music thing. Which John Zorn of, kind of stuff? Earlier. Earlier I would have than thought, that. Actually, I would say someone like John Zorn would have would come have from that. He was right. more of a, he was, he, was, he, uh, he was more kind of post-punk version of it, I think. Right yeah. on. But what was interesting is, 
I did actually see him in the 80s when I was very young. I'm not knowing what my future was going to be. It was free jazz, you know, what they call squeaky bonk. Just pure, full-on noise. That's the term for it, is it? Squeaky bonk? Well, that's what they used that's to incredible. call it, I know. <laughs> that's now, that is a genre like. name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can't say I listen to that anymore. It's not that interesting, I think, musical form, that. But when I first heard it... Exciting. It's pure noise, yeah. basically. I mean, and it was big influence on... On rock, in many ways, actually, even American hardcore, Bad Brains incorporated that kind of avant-garde free jazz into their music, you know. And earlier, I'd say even groups like The Who, uh, you know, Definitely. Jimi Hendrix. Cream, all that cream, stuff. Cream, all yeah, that yeah. stuff was t- taking that sort of free form, especially noise and what have you. So it was, community music was founded with that, right? And what we did was really cool because he was uh, a great egalitarian. He came up with his whole series of methods called Search and Reflect. Where it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what your background is, whoever you've got in the room, you can get them to make music together. doesn't matter if they're tone deaf, doesn't matter if they're whatever, whoever. You know? So it's stripping away often the class yeah, of it all. Absolutely. It was a very, very radical kind of thing. Um, very early 70s, but one of those things that actually carried through now, Dr. Das, you know, did a music teacher training course here, and as I did later as well. And we incorporated a lot of the ideas in the way we built ADF, you know. It was like, an ADF was a community workshop, basically. It was like, you know, there was a lot, in the early 90s, there was a lot of BMP stuff, and there was a lot of, you know, we were a bit older, but there was a lot of, that whole Asian thing, for want of a better word, you know, was... Coming of age in the early 90s. No one had even taken notice of that sort of demographic culturally. Uh-huh. Really. Yeah, no. You just had a load of prejudices or stereotypes about India, you know. Either it was sitting cross-legged, George Harrison going to Maharishi Yogi, or it was the nasty, more racist thing, what are they doing over here, they smell and whatever, you know, all that. All that. All, and the butt of jokes on 76. Growing up in, in that era, I, I can't think of... What what was said about you know about people from the Indian subcontinent? Yeah, the Same Indian the 70s experience. Eighties. There's nothing really. It really was a series of really awful kind of stereotypes, you know. So by the time we got to you know the early nineties, it was just all of a sudden there was a load of us, all from different backgrounds, different ages. We all had a real reason to get out there and make a lot of noise. I guess common in, uh, a common yeah. experience yeah, as common well. Yeah, common experience, but, but very. I'm, I'm, I'm was massive, nothing in common at all with, say, Dida, our original singer. I was already ten years older than him. You know, I'm mixed. My mother's English. I was from South India, is my roots. He's Bangladesh. He was like fifteen, Muslim. You know what I mean? But we all kind of like wedded together, and the older members we were rooted in sort of. You know, dub reggae, yeah. post-punk, you know, that kind of public image vibe. We all love Joe Wobble. They're still writing and releasing incredible music know, as well. Yeah. People can say what they want about John as a individual and, you know, obviously some of his uh, views sometimes mm. are a little bit controversial well, for now, some people. Yeah. Mm. But ultimately, I think what will live on with that guy is his musical output and Pill especially is still now yeah, yeah, still radical and exciting and out there. Joe Wobble as well has much to do with that as well. I of think, course. Uh, but it's, it is, I mean, whatever you say about Leiden, you know, it's very rare you've got someone who changed music twice. Yep. <laughs> I mean, Sex Pistols and Public Image. <laughs> you know, it still sounds, you can use the Public Image vibe, it still sounds good. We still do it, you know, in ADF. We still got that. You know, it's still a kind of default 
sort of foundation for us. Does the cocktail of sounds definitely come from that mixture of backgrounds and ages and influences? Absolutely, and... because we think about it, you know, dub reggae, hip hop, you know, uh, things like Gil Scott Heron and stuff like that, you know, Acid House. I first met Dr. Das during the Acid House era. I wasn't even playing guitar. It was like just doing it was a busy, it was a busy, you know. <laughs> so we had that. Live electronics, very big thing. We were, I was lucky and I got, our first gig was with the Orbital. And when Orbital started, it was really, people don't realise quite how radical they were because they were actually running, they were bringing all these bits of gear and running it live. No DATs or deep nor decks, all live. Weird and wonderful machines. And they were always like nervous as hell. And I saw the first time I saw them was at the first gig we played together, early 1990. And I thought, God, this is great. And then about an hour into it, I was going, why am I getting so excited by these two bald guys looking at each other? Looking really tense, and I was, and then I realised they're playing live. That that setup is so primitive and mad; it can fall apart any moment, and they know it. And that's what's good. It was almost like the complete opposite of DJ culture and stuff. Yeah, so that yeah, was actually yeah. a big root of ADF. And that was before community music. Actually, we used to go to these raves. I, I played guitar as well. He got me to play guitar at raves over drum beats and sampled Indian stuff. That's where it first started. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Dr. Das was a nuttery to get a bagpipe player, get an Indian singer in. And so basically in nothing was off limits. Nothing was off limits. And it, but it was always with Dr. Das, it was always militant. There was none of the acid or everyone hold hands. It was always oppositional. And I really felt that strongly. And we had, when we first met, I'll tell you, the advert, there used to be a listings magazine called City Limits. And he put an advert in and it said... Um, Black stroke Asian musicians required for experimental dub noise project. And I was the only one that answered. And we instantly we had Adrian Sherwood and On You Sound in common, you know what I mean? And I was a huge Sonic Youth fan as well. It was like my dream was to combine Sonic Youth with kind of electronic dub music, you know. Which hadn't been done really, had it, at that not point? Really. Yeah, I mean, Especially we, not in the UK. No, not really, no. No, not at all. I mean, they kind of did it themselves with that Chicone Youth album a bit, you know. But... Um, so that was our first point of meeting. And then he called me up to join. He'd started ADF for about three months. He called me up to join. And then I took a course at Community Music. And so the ADF was very much part of that place. Formed in that place, observed the philosophy of that place, but also was very, very on the cutting edge of that moment, both in terms of music and the sort of cultural um, environment. What springs to mind is the overriding um, mood of mid-90s when the band's getting ready to put out its first album in terms of politics, culture, music we've sort of touched on. Obviously, I guess Britpop was the predominant thing, but then all the the great underground music was, Mm. you know, you're talking about rave and avant-garde. Well, you had a lot of the trip-hop stuff, but you also had a a burgeoning French rap scene, which we kind of like, when we, we first... Did really well in France, totally by surprise. And Is that because the English on. kind of press and people weren't taking notice of the band, so you thought, well, the let's English just go press over at that there. Time, and... You see, the, you see the, the thing is about now, well, people criticise now, you know, as compared to then, but there's great advantages now, is, is that you can actually really like something now and set up your own blog and like yourself, you know, your own podcast, and, and you do it because you really like it. Yeah. Then when you've got like three music papers or what have you like that, 
it's not really about it wasn't really about liking music you know what I mean yeah, it was yeah. something else taste making and taste yeah it was this kind of gatekeeper thing and what should I be writing about you know what I mean not really what I and think what should I be ignoring what should I be criticising yeah, exactly. and so and the people that really helped us out who understood this it's, were primal screen right because they knew I mean you know you know Bobby Gillespie was the Pope of of, of rock of rave enemy, you know what I mean yeah, yeah. And, well before just as a kind of rock and roll archetype and the fact that he dipped into Acid House and they did some really great one great album actually Vanishing Point um, and they came to see us and they loved us and they wouldn't shut up about us and it spread so we had we'd done this album it done really well in France but it wasn't until we started getting sort of blessing. Right, from the, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the cool NME kind of hierarchy. That, and then all of a sudden people started taking notice of us. And that was purely because of Bobby Gillespie name-checking you in interviews? and. Well, that's what, it's like, I think in Britain at that time, you had to get find a way to get people to give you an audience, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to get, it's that, it's that thing, it, because it's so, um, what's the word, heterogeneous or something now? Whereas the actual homogenized portals, well. yeah, yeah. the portals of, um, of 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 where people get music were much smaller. You know what I mean? Um, especially for live bands. I mean, it was already starting to get very pluralistic on the dance scene. With like, especially when Jungle it was all like pirate radio. People setting up pirate radio stations in the top of their council blocks. You know, until the police moved along, and they went to another one. You know, that was very cool. We were influenced Jungle by that, but, was yeah. massive in the Midlands. I remember it yeah, as a yeah, kid, yeah. like being know, yeah. Jungle and German bass were two mm. of those predominant yeah. movements of the time. Crazy. I thought it was really exciting. I thought it was the last breath of rock and roll, actually, Jungle. Just high-speed music, mad free jazz drums, distortion bass. It even sounded a bit almost you know, heavy rock to me, some of the... Lock... Yeah, 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 yeah. All of a sudden, the, 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 the drums would drop and then would come this... The most distorted riff you've ever heard, but it's a reggae riff, <laughs> but it's played with huge distortion, then it comes back in at like a million miles an hour. I mean, basically, you know, we still do it in the band. We still, we were, I think we were the first band, I think you'd be hard pressed to find an album before our first one, which had live bass, live guitar, and I developed a style that worked with Jungle Breakbeats, you know, and Jungle Breakbeats. With with an MC, but also with the Indian stuff as well. I mean, but even without the Indian stuff, you know, the um, the actual sound of the band was pretty unique because we were sort of old, sort of you know, acid house, post punk, sort of uh, reggae, punky reggae people playing live bass, live guitar on top of jungleist breakbeats. You know, well, even now it still thing. sounds contemporary. Well, it does. Like I'll the... tell you what does sound contemporary if you listen to Rapid Revenge now is Dina's vocals. Yeah, because uh, at the time people came more to see us from the more rock uh, indie kind of background. That was a bit they had trouble with then. But now, you know, with, after ten years of grime, it's it's uh, nothing really. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. It actually sounds the speed and the delivery sounds like a unique take on grime now. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Well, you're gearing up to release the twenty is it twenty first anniversary? anniversary, and that was the album when you say that. Took things to the next level for the yeah, band. Yeah, very much so. In terms of mainstream very recognition. Very interesting and... a group like us got to that. Coming from the background of the company. What do you think was the driving uh, force and reasons as to why? Apart from the fact that you were just a shit hot band. <laughs> um, 
There must I, have been I a void there, right? I to this, but I actually think it's a pretty damn good band. It sounded new, but it was very exciting, you know. It, uh, it had an intellect, but it wasn't intellectual. It was uh, very much an internationalist music, but it wasn't a kind of WOMAD music. It, it, was, it had a rock and roll punk spirit, but it wasn't musically based on that. It had the guitar sound, but the, the actual rhythm section was very much rooted in reggae and expressed through high-speed uh, jungle drum and bass things. So it was, it, was, it was an unusual combination, plus the, uh, the fact that we were all of Asian descent. You know what I mean? And, and that was culture-busting in so many ways. I mean, it's hard to describe now. But, you know, an early gig we did, we literally had people coming up to me, me and saying, where are your tablers? I was expecting, I wasn't expecting that, I was expecting my holiday in Goa, you know. And um, our subject, I mean, because you see, see back then, you know, Asians weren't meant to be, weren't meant to be where we were. We, may, we were, still to this day, we can't stand Gandhi, you know what I mean. My father hated Gandhi, but on his work, you know, this whole, the Gandhification of Indian history, we were spit blooded, you know what I mean. Uh, that's why we wrote the song Naxalite, which is actually about a militant Maoist armed guerrilla group that still exists. I mean, they're not the nicest of people, you know. But the reason we did it was to try and say, hang on, it's not all pacifism, you know what I mean? Um, we used to call it militant technology, and, we, you know, we talk about violence, the violence in Indian culture and things like that, you know. Well, you're coming from that public enemy bit, approach, but yeah, for your culture. Yeah, yeah, if you like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Had that though we were never um, we were never separatists. Like, unfortunately, they had a bit of a. I loved them. Yeah, brilliant. Chuck he's still my hero. But I look back and I'm not sure about the Farrakhan things and stuff. I mean, we were never about that. We were we were we were just talking about our backgrounds really. And the reason it's called Asian Dub Foundation because the name was needed for a particular event, and it was all at that stage. It was all about getting young Asians involved in music. You know, that's all it was about. We had a band meeting after I joined, and Dr. Das said, um, all right, we're probably only going to last another six months. Those guys, John Pundit and Oni, they, they, they had no intention of it ever being more than a group that was, um, you know, doing the occasional benefit in East London. That is absolutely the genuine truth. There was no ambition to get where it got. Maybe I had a little bit of it. And Bobby, our manager, certainly did, obviously. But, but only because, and this is the real reason, is I thought when I started playing, I thought, God, this is the first time in my life. I've been in loads of bands. in loads of bands in Birmingham, you know. I thought, this is the first time. The world has got to hear what we're doing. They've got to hear it. There was no sort of like uh, aspiration to, to be big or any of those kind of terms. It was like, the world has to hear this shit. You know what I mean? That's how I felt. And I, managed, I met Bobby Marshall, and he saw us, and he felt the same way. So actually, in the early years, it was actually quite a lot of persuasion to persuade the other guys in the band to, keep to going. actually yeah. go to America and support Beastie Boys. How was that? Because that was them it. at their they didn't peak, want to do right? it. They didn't want to do it. That's unbelievable. They didn't want to, it was just me and Bobby versus <laughs> the rest. And why? I don't want to go. Who are these? And Dina never heard it. Heard them, you know. Why should he have done it? You know? Was it a good tour for you? Amazing, what an experience. Everyone really enjoyed it. They were really great to us. 
you know, in what terms is it of that? Actual... Was it like intergalactic era for them, or just it, before that? It was that? Uh, Hello Nasty. Yeah, Hello Nasty. So yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant show. My God. I mean, I've been a fan actually. None of the rest, the rest of the band knew them at all, really. But we were actually knocked out the whole experience. We we got it as nice as you could get a support band doing a stadium tour of America. They paid for the. Um, they paid us, right? That doesn't happen normally. Normally, you've got the buy on. Yeah, yeah. You never had to do Or you that. get like 50 quid a show or some shit. Yeah, well, yeah. no, you normally have to pay to do the show. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that never happened. You know, we've never done a buy on in our lives, you know. Um, uh, they took our gear in their, in their, their bus. Uh, they let us walk in and out of their dressing room, no problem with food and stuff like that. Other, some other tools we did with bigger groups. There always seemed to be this argument about whether we were whether we were allowed to have dessert or something. You know I mean, sort of, <laughs> this is a sort of, you know yeah, what I mean, yeah, yeah. I know it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these sort of basic things that we were like really spoiled. It's all a power play, isn't it? Some people like to pull rank to try and yeah. like reinforce their status. Beast is enough. And the tour manager was one of the sweetest man, men I ever met, you know. It was an amazing experience. And the reason we got that, um, they saw us by accident in Vienna. They just came to the show and said, oh, they're good. Come on, Tom. Yeah. What was your live show like around that time? It must have been the most high-energy yeah, culture wild. clash cocktail yeah, of sounds and images and ideas. I wasn't really. It was such a blur. That anyone madness, could imagine. You know what I mean? And it was a, it was, it, I mean, ADF um, was then. It was an intense group. We had incredible laughs and stuff. But at the same time, we were very, you know, I think we could be a bit frightening if people came in our dressing room. They'd either, they'd either think we were completely mad and this is some lunatic house or, or, or we'd be having some argument or debate or something. You know what I mean? We'd shout a lot like most bloody Asian households. Shout a lot, you know what I mean? That's a normal, normal volume. Are you all quite different political thinkers as well? Have you all got quite different you know, ideas? No one ever asked that. You're the first person in 26 years that actually ever asked that. <laughs> um, you see, the thing is, is like, I mean, you know, the score, I mean, a lot of journalists will try to control the narrative, things like that. So we got this political tag thing and say to the enemy of the time, that meant Sandinista, what have you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That meant Che Guevara. What, you know, it's kind of like reduced sort of cliches and stuff like that, you know, a kind of rock and roll version of politics. And they tried, they, they tried to sort of shoehorn it into that a bit yeah but having said that and Rage a... Against the Machine I'm sure you would have been compared to a thousand times yes, even though the right, sound yeah. is nothing like that yeah yeah no, <laughs> I mean we never heard Rage Against the Machine but, but it is weird there, there were some territory where the bands did uh, I mean you know and people thought we were ripping them off and I thought yeah, no, yeah. I, we'd never heard it honestly I thought they were just a Led Zeppelin club now after when we did the tour with them which I have to say we didn't enjoy that much but um, I saw what Tom was doing and I thought wow fucking hell actually in a way there, there was there was a similar an accidental similarity in that on the guitar front because he had, creating new sounds yeah creating sounds yeah. actually where you, you make sure that you you know you want it to stay hip hop so you make the guitar an accessory to the hip hop beats rather than the indie dance thing which you had in the late 80s which is like you still want it basically to be an indie band but you just put the only beat that works you know Right. That's the only, that was the sound of indie dance, you know. But where, where and also when um, you know, so what Tom did was he actually kind of like started really bending that guitar so it worked with actual genuine hip hop. I did the same with Jungle and Drum and Bass. 
And so when I actually saw them, I thought, oh, God, yeah. He's kind of come to the same... He's used some of the same methods as me on guitar, i.e. fuck guitarism, you know. But yeah, I was yeah, probably yeah. more than him because I threw out a lot of... Um, I mean, you could still tell he was a rock with a capital R guitarist, whereas that's less the case with me. I'm not really... I've never really been a heavy rock guitarist. I like a lot of, you know, psychedelic playing and funk and reggae playing, do you know what I mean? And I like, obviously, who doesn't like Hendrix, you know, but was never grounded in Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin like he was, you know. But we did, we did use the same kind of methods to make the guitar work with uh, breakbeats and stuff. Because most people did, most guitarists usually got that wrong, still do, actually, I think, you know. But, um, yeah, there was that, I, that, and we did find it irritating. I mean, it was funny, that because really half the band didn't know a lot of these groups that we were getting compared to. They never heard them. It's quite funny, really. But they were, the press was yeah. putting you all on the same page politically, were they? It was very hard for them to write about ADF. They liked it, genuinely. Or some of them thought they had to like it, what have you. And not many journalists actually got it. Funnily enough, it was a, the old-school vintage journalists. That every time I saw someone like... Like Charles Shaw Murray write about, so well, it's like, yeah, he's got it. Do you know what I mean? Because you see, the politics thing was always misunderstood. Ours was about politics of sound. The last thing we'd ever, still to this day, I get tapes or whatever. He's like, you will like us because we are a political group. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. It just sounds fucking awful. You know, <laughs> you know and and then people misunderstand that. You see, our instrumentals we considered. Rebellious. Radical and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a politics of sound, if anything, you know, like the idea that you know, someone like any in a way, any music can be radical, of course, right, right. without yeah, without lyrics, the, you can even have even if the people instrumental do it, well, music jazz was the ultimate, like you know, that was the scream of civil rights, you know, you know, you got a Max Roach album with free jazz album called uh, which is meant to accompany civil rights marches. It's free jazz. It's mad, squeaky, bomb, and yet you can tell what it's about. Yeah, know? and and that's was our approach. Sticking all those that stuff together, you know, dub reggae, jungle, post punk, and you know, punky reggae, and then also lots of different music from different cultures, but not in a worldy musicy way, in a radical way. I mean, our mates. Did you get tagged with that label a bit as well? That whole kind of world music. No, you mentioned the group earlier, yeah, Tiana I mean, Rowan. Like, well, yeah, they're fantastic. They are fantastic. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's that's recent developments. I think what is called world music now is weirdly it says it's a lot more diverse than it was <laughs> in the eighties. It used to really annoy me because it was like it was almost like you'd almost feel like that audience had to like all these really middle of the road, mediocre West African bands. You know what I mean? Who actually weren't that good. Yeah, they were just considered good take the right box by, by dint of where they come from which yeah. is a kind of river dare i say it, a kind of reverse prejudice you know? of course one thing i said in an interview at the time he said I, I don't want to be liked just because we're a bunch of sweet brown boys we have as much right to be shit as anybody else right you see what i mean because there's the other side of it that you know one thing we would get very we would get really aggressive because we did not want to be liked for the novelty you know what i mean that was another thing we were really, really aware of. Now, when we were on Nation Records, we used to play with people like Trans Clover and stuff like that. You know, a good, good band, but we had a different take on it. 
very different take on it. And we, and we took off from there very quickly. We left that. We, we obviously weren't of that ilk, you know, this kind of funky, uh, exotic splash of colour kind of music. You know what I mean? We were much darker, you know, mood-wise and confrontational, you know. And we hit it off in France in about 95, totally unexpectedly. And we got a lot of people who were against Le Pen, you know, because Le Pen, was that was his first big foray into national politics. And uh, a lot of people liked the energy of what we were saying, you know what I mean, and uh, the way we were doing it, even though they probably didn't understand a word of it, you know. Um, and we got we found ourselves with a quite big selling album in France. Totally expected, you know. We got a like a, a, a gold disc for our second one, you know. That was only released in France. That was the original version of Rappi's Revenge. It's called Rappi '97. And that was a hundred thousand copies plus done. Yeah, in '97. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, you know. <laughs> and so well, it, it when you come to not, uh, you know, not aware of when you come to score La Haine later yeah. on. Um, I guess it was like the perfect marriage, right? It, it felt you were like this felt is very right, yeah, yeah. Made in heaven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also the film, the way it's structured, actually allowed us to kind of interject. There's about five or six scenes where there is no talking, no background sound or anything, and just a song. So we replace the song. Uh, you know, the the the, the Marley track that opens it. Which is a great song. The lyric fits what's going on, burning the blue tin. But the rhythm doesn't. And Matthew Kasavitz himself said that to us. The director, he said, oh, yeah, he's saying, you know, I didn't never, we didn't have a soundtrack. I see what you did with the opening, you know. You actually played with a, you played a riot rhythm and sound. Even though the Marley track, Burning Lutin, addresses it lyrically. It yeah, yeah. It's still a Jamaican, you know. But, but it's not really the speed and the energy of the smashing of the, the glass and stuff, you know. Whereas what we do is, you know, it's a different, you know, I think he liked our interpretation of it. He saw it. You know. How many live shows did you do of that? Because it was over a period of years, right? You're still going with still it. Still doing it. Was we, it what, something that once you fine tune, you're like, we can do this yeah. as long I mean, as we it's want, had anywhere a we want. Rebirth, and we uh, we do it quite. It, fundamentally, it's the same sound, same tracks. We play it with a different format, but it's fundamentally the same. It hasn't changed. Playing the same thing for 18 years, it doesn't appear to date. You know, Where's some of the best shows been for that specific live score? I, I actually think probably the first one at Barbican was yeah. it's still my favourite, really. There was a f- it's very interesting because you think, you ought to, we automatically thought, well, people have to sit down and we're kind of the nonce. But it can actually be quite a vibey gig as well. Cause so you can have people state. in some cases standing, yeah, dancing. Yeah, they're really cool. I mean, we played a festival in France where everybody knew the film inside out yeah and it was in a big tent and they had about five or six screens of it and we're on stage and everyone is saying the words of the film and then dancing and saying the phrases and it's like because i remember that they used to have the rocky horror show where you'd actually go dressed up and you stand and shout things and throw water on people it was a bit like that but with lead you know sort of participation well this is all pre-secret yeah. cinema isn't it well, this is probably, I was just going to get, this is probably the most influential thing we ever did because Fabian Rigol, the founder of Super Cinema, came to see that gig at the Barbican and he was chasing me for a while, wanting to get together and do something because he said that that was a big influence on Super Cinema. Wow, yeah. there you go. I know, I'm extremely proud of that. My God, that's probably, 
Because that's, uh, I'd say that's a our, world probably our famous yeah. live event now, isn't I it? I know, yeah, yeah. Well, we did La Henry, we revived La Henry for Fabian and Secret Cinema. And we did it at Broadwater Farm. Amazing, man. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And Battle of Algier, how does yeah. that one come on? Is that on a, a film that you've sort of grown up with and been familiar with, or did it come on your radar no, later it, on? I knew it well and I loved it. And, and um, that was a suggestion by someone else in 2003, initially, after we'd done The Hen. Okay, straight off the back of it. Yeah, yeah I was off the back of The Hen and um, Guy Morley at the Fight Festival. He asked to do it and we said no, originally, because... You didn't want to just fall into doing that, was it? No, no, gladly. But yeah. Yeah, we were absolutely, <laughs> completely like, we're not worthy. You're scored by Morricone, for fuck's sake. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, so that was the reason. How yeah, dare yeah. we? That was my first reaction. No way, never. I'm not going to play over Morricone. He's a genius. He's a god. You know, and then, but then he persuaded us, persuaded us. And a year later, we had a go. And we do work with a Morricone score. And I think it's the best of the three, actually, by... Quite a long way, actually. As a film, the Morricone score, and how we work with it, and the fact it's got all these epic scenes, and in a way, the kind of anti-colonial sort of thing is is very much at the core of ADF's sort of psycho history, I suppose. So it's it's probably the best one. I'm just, I hope we do it as well as we did it the first time because we did it in two thousand. You've only done a couple of shows. Yeah, you? that's right. We did it at uh, the Dome in Brighton and Hackney Empire. It was it was a really really great project. I'm very proud of it, but it never we only did it twice. You know? So we'll see. It's a different. We're doing it very differently this time. You know. What we couldn't you, Have you got it. stuff planned? Have you? Yeah, well, I'm working on it right yeah, now. Yeah. Look, can't you see the bags? <laughs> yeah, we're trying to retrieve. A so with with with, with, a, with a view to doing what you did with Lane and take it all over the world. Oh, I really and... hope so. I hope so. Yeah, you know. Amazing. Yeah, I hope so. But you know what? I'll, I'll be honest, you know, we've been going 25 years now. These things aren't quite as, you know, they always seem a little more unstable, you know. You know, the doing of all this. I haven't had to do so much bloody work as this for quite a long time, actually. Because it was like retrieving all the music from 15 years ago. Getting it into a form which is transportable and playable in a certain circumstance, and it's like done my nothing, actually, but no pain, no gain. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. How do you balance all of that? Like the scientist in the lab going crazy. How do you balance that with your normal life and your family? And Actually, it's been a bit crap. That. Yeah. This, this is the first time for a while when I've had to, you know, when I've had to really kind of like not where, where the balance is tipped the other way. But it's not my mind why I'm moaning, you know. I've kind of been moaning about it the last couple of weeks. I to stop really. You want to get out that tunnel. <laughs> yeah, I've got to get out of that tunnel, yeah. But honestly, it was quite frustrating, actually, I have to say. But I think I've hit it now. How many kids have you got, Steve? I've got two. One in Birmingham, who's a musician as well. You might have heard of him, actually. Maybe an electric swing circus. You heard of that scene? Uh, so what? It's like um, a mixture of dub and swing. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they, yeah. they do a lot of nights in Mosley and stuff, don't they? They do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Do a lot. That's okay. Son, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. There you go. Amazing. Yeah. So he's taken on the family business very much he really so. Has. He has. He's putting his own twist on it. Yeah, very much so. Go, yeah, that's quite a huge. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure like um, how well known it is outside the Midlands, but I know in the Midlands it's very yeah. well. Yeah, and they're, they're one of the sort and... of prime, uh, um, you know, sort of movers a bit. And they're a live band as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's largely a DJ-based scene, I think. But, but, but they do it. He's the drummer and keyboard player with the group. And they, they tour all over the place. You know? I love and, it. That's amazing, really. I, I mean, I wouldn't know what to do now. So I'm very proud of them because I just thought, just think, God, how do you do that now? <laughs> you know? And basically, they just spend all their time on social media. You know, and, um, Promoting and plugging. It's just second nature to Are you engaged in that world at all? Are you an online guy? I am, actually, but only because I have to. I'm very selective as well, you know. I say I only go on Twitter because I think I have to, you know. Don't really do Instagram, as you should, you know. Facebook, for me, but that's dying, you know. I was, I was really on it with Facebook, but it seems to be, you know, rats leaving the sinking ship on that one, you know. So, um, I don't know, really. I don't know what... what you compare it with, I suppose I am, but I'm, I, I, I don't know who's because when you were a band, obviously coming up, it wasn't a thing, was it? At it was all, a really? little bit of a thing, but not, not, not in the way that it became. Yeah, not at all. I mean, I, it was not long into our career that Nap, Napster killed hit. the music business. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Napster, yeah. Did that have an impact on a band, say, of your level, or were you more of a live band that made your Income on I, I the road, anyway. Yes, yes, yes. But but the peak of it was about two thousand and three with the fourth album, when we were playing very big shows, and that album did do very well. You know, by today's standards, very well. I'd say, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. What I mean, and um, I actually read in Wikipedia the other day that, that it was certified gold in France. I didn't bloody know. Where's my fucking disc? <laughs> Not like we're supposed to be into stuff like that. But it's just, it's well, it funny when you, read in, when you read in Wikipedia <laughs> that you've got a gold disc from an album 15 years ago and you've never seen it. It's probably on some 
you know, some French record company executives <laughs> like Wall and his snorting car. Yeah, I, I, I did all this. I, I, those, I love those guys. Oh, sorry, who? <laughs> You know, from an uh, from an economic yeah. point of view, there's a lot of talk at the moment amongst young musicians and the the worry about the restrictions that Brexit's going to put on them as a touring oh, band. Christ, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what have you got to say about that in terms of someone who really did have the freedom to tour Europe and help uh, their career grow in that way? Is it going to have a really hardcore negative impact? Do you think on the well, the it, music it industry? Depends on the resultant deal, doesn't it? I mean. But yeah, it's got to have a negative one or a disastrous one. Somewhere between, it's not going to be as easy as it was to complete disaster. And you think about it, it's what a five billion quid industry, largely based on export, you know. And um, if you think about it, it's ten or eleven people, ADF, playing three different European com- countries every weekend during the summer. That's our lives now. So, customs checks, uh, what do you call them, the, the documents you have to have, you know, the, um, that, you, that they don't check, you know, now. Flights, mobile calls, I, I, I mean, the, 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 the visas even, you know what I mean? I mean, they can ruin tours, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, visa to go to France, you know, hopefully it won't get to that stage. No, no I think it's a disaster for music, and... And unfortunately, when you speak, I've had debates online with some Brexiteers, and and guess, How does that guess, go? guess what their line is? I've gone. Well, the Beatles went to Hamburg <laughs> before the EU. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. Yeah, I mean, but that's what you're dealing with. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? yeah. You know, or there was touring before. Yeah, yeah. there was touring, and a lot of tours got cancelled because people didn't get visas on time, and it was massively only supergroups could do it. The fact is that you know the EU, that freedom of movement and the, the business freedom. Allows medium range yeah. people to make a living out of music. Like us, really. You know, I mean, I think without those benefits, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very, very hard. So you, you're saying that not even for the young upcoming bands, actually for bands of a certain I'd say, I'd lifetime, say, they're still going to be hit by it hard I as think, well. I think it's more a group like us that's going to be hit by anybody else. It's our main source of income. We're used to a certain, yeah. just sort of like making enough have an okay average income do you know what i mean with a younger band i suppose it's um you know if you're like 19 or whatever you're prepared to rough it you don't mind like staying up like five nights a week and like crashing on a fucking floor or whatever so yeah, yeah. might not and the travel will be more expensive and the bureaucracy but it might not stop you from doing music and if you're an old super group or whatever like the old moaners like I don't know, like the old rockers who actually pro-Brexit by the sound of it. Well, there's been a video yeah, with Roger yeah. Daltrey going around, which yeah, is why I asked yeah, you about that's it. that's right, yeah. Where I he's like, that. ah, it's got nothing that. to do with music. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. And it's it's a shame because someone like Roger Daltrey does so much good work for Teenage Cancer Trust yeah, for charity, did, and he's yeah, a really decent bloke. So. But in today's world, mm. someone like that says one wrong thing, mm. and it goes viral, and everyone goes, he's a cunt, I hate him. Do you know what I mean? He and does seem a bit of <laughs> I met him actually. He wasn't, but we see him pontificating. He does yeah, yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. So no, I, I think it's got to be negative, and it's not just about the musicians. And this is another thing: when you speak to Brexiteers online, they think if you're into music, you're in, you know, a privileged existence and what have you. But it's not just the musician, and we're not privileged at all. And but riggers, drivers, 
Yeah. You know, techs. Or just people who want to go work in hospitality. people, yeah, you know. Bars and restaurants. I mean, yeah, I mean, for fuck's sake. But then this is what's not understood is that chain of the connectedness of things. Yeah. Know? I mean, you, you get a festival in Britain and it travels around Europe, the same festival, with the same crew and the same stadium. How's that, how's that going to work, you know? It's not, is it? It's a fucking minefield, it's isn't it? It's not. You know, let's face it. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking earlier on about TX1138. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's go back to yeah. that real briefly. That was the, uh, that's the only one of your live score shows that I've seen mm. at the Barbican. I think you were saying it was the first one, was the show that I caught. Um, a very different film to yeah, the other very, two. Very. I guess less on the surface politically charged. But then Ooh, I don't know about that. once you scratch Off. deeper... And that's what I wanted you to talk to me well, about, about as a surveillance, isn't as it? a science fiction yeah. film. What yeah, yeah, the yeah. relevance of that is almost to today's world more so than when it was I made. I thought as it well. actually had a fantastic relevance actually because I, th- I think it actually married quite a lot of stuff in it. There was a fundamentalist religion in it, which was very repressive. It was also tied to extreme capitalism and consumerism. Yep, and a massive surveillance state. You know, all all in one. It was like it was like almost a compendium of dystopias up to that point. You know. Uh, I thought it was very interesting with that, and the mood of it as well. And and what I really liked about it was the idea that this society had almost evolved without even people noticing. You know, when you see, I mean, I mean, there's some actually some interesting comments on racism in it. When I spoke to Walter Murch, he was almost over the moon. I noticed that right because no one knew that. Uh, there's the character in it, the hologram, the black hologram character, right? And um, he was told he's, he's not a hologram, but he's told he's a hologram. He's an entertainment hologram. Do you know what I mean? And that is just like, that's how black people were seen in America at that time. Yeah, you're there. Yeah. They were, they were there for singing or whatever, but they were like holograms, less not quite real. You know what I mean? I thought that was brilliant, you know? And Walter Murch, he was, he was amazed that we picked up on that because no one did, you know? Well, it's such. It's not even a footnote, is it? Because mm. Star Wars is so massive, mm. it's so rarely even discussed, or you know, there's no attention ever really thrown yeah. on that film as like, oh, this is where the guy who went on to make Star Wars started. Yeah, to be fair, it does have a lot of flaws, and actually, when you get into it that much, you see, uh, uh, visually, and uh, it really made sense as a live soundtrack. But when you start getting, there are some flaws in the narrative and the actual audio. We had trouble with it, you know. Now, I would have done it a bit differently again if I'd done it. If we do it again. Which now I hope we will. Uh, one you saw was it, it was very, you know it was like you were saying earlier you know it was very much dependent on the room and the people and what have you. So um, whereas something like the hen is is successful pretty much every time we do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and there is it, it's to do with the intrinsic qualities of the film as well. You know what I mean? The hen is a much better film. But of course, yeah. Well, that's like an experimental student film, really. Yes, isn't it's it? an experimental student film, but. And also it's niche. It actually yeah. appealed to me personally a lot more than a neutral person, if you see what I mean. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's not even a cult classic as a film, is it, really? Not really, no. Though some people think it is. It's a debated one, you yeah. know what I mean? Whereas La Hen and Battle of Algiers are, there's no debate about yeah. those. So, so in a way, it was a bit risky to HX. And, um, you know, it's an incredible show that Bricks... Um, Cambridge, Bristol, 
We did a few really up San Francisco. We did a good one. But then we did a few kind of like uh, ones that didn't work, like Sydney Opera House or whatever. Really <laughs> you did one there, really? No, it's insane. <laughs> it wasn't. It was not good actually. Um, you got to dream big, though. Why was it? Why did it not work? Well, is it just too much I of a grandiose setting? Honest, no. Uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to talk too much about that. Start to get. Are there are there many other films? Because it's it's become almost mm. like a a side like a side project of your own band if yeah. that makes sense it's a version of the band do you know what i mean is yeah. there many other projects you could see yourself down the line exploring and delving into from a filmic point of uh, view from a filmic point of view i don't know i mean because doing battle of algiers again you know that's, that's going to take up a lot of, of... yeah yeah I, I can't see another one there's actually one that me personally i'd like to do actually but on a, i'd like to do it on a smaller scale i think because these projects they're big projects you know when we did THX, we got, you know, got quite a lot of support for it. We had, like, two articulated tracks for the fucking thing, you know what I mean? It's probably the biggest thing we've done on that front, technically, ever, you know? I know we did a tour of um, quite very big venues in France once with, uh, you know, a lot of equipment and very big venues, you know. But um, very rarely do we go that, that big, you know, so it was pretty big. And La Haine... When we were doing La Haine and Battle of Algiers, we had a lot of quite big tech support, you know, but that's not so forthcoming now. So I don't think, personally, I don't think I'd do another one like that with the band, no. But you never know, you know, I mean, we've done all kinds of old projects, you know. What about the band itself? Is there any new record on the horizon? Yeah, there is. We, 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 we've got one uh, ready. Right. Yeah, we still might do some extra on it. I'm not sure when it's coming out, though. It's a funny thing with albums now, isn't it? You know, it's just sort of like one, one of many things going on. Well, mine's not really on it at the moment, but when I get, I'll get back to it after this Battle of Algiers thing. You know what I mean? Once that's over, we'll start looking at, ah, oh, right, let's see what we've got. Because we have recorded quite a lot of stuff. What's it like being in a collective and a group with so many other guys? It's a very unique well, you see, that's Point the sort of, view, of thing that's been associated. And when we started the first six or seven years, we were a real genuine collective, there's no doubt. We worked very differently from other groups. Like the third album, I remember literally, it's all five of us sitting around with a blank piece of paper. And we wrote some, probably our best set of lyrics on the third, uh, third album. It was so collective. But it, I have to be honest, it's not really a collective now. It's a group of people that come together occasionally. Uh, is that because of age and life and responsibility? And I suppose so, yeah. It's because of a lot of things, but you never know how these things are going to evolve. It still works. It still works very well, I think. But it's not in the same... Like, for the first six or seven years, we were always together. And we were always based at community music. All of us were there most of the time. You know what I mean? So we had that kind of constant connection. So the, the, there was a great sense of balance. Rafferty's Revenge, you can hear it. A great sense of balance with the group. You know, it's, it feels like you can't see the joint. You can't hear the joint. You know what I mean? And um, everyone, it's as one, you know. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's magic and that's rare. And it normally happens in a group's first, you know, first initial birth, over six. We were lucky, I think, it, probably carried on with us for about 10, 11 years, you know what I mean? And then we had a, sort of some dips and then a gradual sort of like slope back up, which is what I think we're in now, you know? 
So uh, I wouldn't say it's a collective now. I, I couldn't really... Because a collective, it meant something very special to us, that term, that we were that. And we're not yeah. that. We're not as we were. And the first, say, three albums, I'm sure. There's no... It'd be dishonest to say that. But you're still all friends and you all still enjoy it. Oh, we all still enjoy it. Friends? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> some some people are friendlier with others than others. Do you know what I mean? You know, well, there's a lot of elements, isn't there? Yeah. There's yeah, a lot yeah. of elements going on. And you, yeah. they're a completely separate band. And it's a kind of a bad reference to make. But I just saw today that I think the fourth member now of Slipknot, who were originally nine, has now been kicked out of the band as well. Oh, really? And it's like when you get down to, you start with nine and then it's blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, you know, there's one guy left and you think, yeah. well, is it still the same thing? But mm. obviously you guys still have a lot of the original members, right? Well, just... we have like two in the live band and then the sound system is run by John, who was Pandit, who was in the original band. So it's kind of three working in the ADF world. So three out of five, which I suppose ain't bad by today's standards, you know? Yeah. Um, and also, gonna... we've had like you know, Actar has been with us nineteen years on and off. You know, Squidly, Squidly has been with us for about the same amount of time. So it is all of them. You know, it's quite it's quite, quite over a long span. But the newer members, you know, wow. I mean, Nathan Flutebox Lee, beatbox flute inventor, and a great drummer who was who, who used to play with the Prodigy, Brian Fairburn. Right? Fantastic guys, you know. Really amazing. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've had periods where it feels really rejuvenated. Certainly recently. Yeah. Uh, anything else going on for you creatively outside of, of the band? Do you do any other projects? No. I, or does this take all, up more than enough time? all under the aegis of ADF. I mean, other members of the band have got their own films. Uh, but not me, really. Not me. And whenever I try and do it, and it sounds as good as ADF, so I don't. <laughs> so this is you now yeah, for the long been, really. haul. I, I've, I've been the only one who hasn't done my own thing actually you know, if, I, if I did do something it'd be, I would make it not like it ADF at all I think you know. I, I don't know what it'd be really. it might not even be music there you go yeah. um, nice one thanks for your Thank time you. mate Nice talking to you. Yeah, really nice. This collaboration you with no ego trip. We no bring no badness, no fuss or fighting with it. And educational. Why don't you keep up with this? Talk people attention to the conscious lyrics me cry. What they ma do? And what they ma chat about? When you them after nine o'clock, can't stay out of government, man. Instead run up on the mud. Here, what he ma say will happen without a doubt. Cannot think for himself. Come the American to be loved attention. Bring the idea to be. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.